As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Most Notorious, the American woman whose accent the Nazis used to broadcast their propaganda to Allied soldiers during World War II, Mildred Gillers, better known as Axis Sally. And a man who had played in the orchestra and was in the army now, the German army, was on patrol. And he ran into her and says, Miss Gillers, what are you, what's going on? And she said, the Russians are going to try to to kill me. They're looking for me. So are the Americans. I've got to get out of here. So she stayed there until the very end. And she left through the back door when the Soviets came and broke into the radio studio. Welcome to another brand new episode of Most Notorious. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for joining me yet again. So pleased to have as my guest today, Richard Lucas. He is a freelance writer and a lifelong shortwave radio enthusiast. And he is here to talk about his book, Axis Sally, The American Voice of Nazi Germany. Great to have you. Thank you so much for coming on. Great to be here. Thanks. So what was it about this story that inspired you to write a book about it? Well, two things really drove me to write the book. First of all, I had been a, as you mentioned, a shortwave radio listener since since I was about 10 years old. And when I was going through some of the older World War II-year shortwave broadcasts on the internet, I heard the voice of Mildred Gillers, who was Axis Sally. She was an American who lived in Germany and worked for Berlin Radio. And I also noticed that there were other other recordings, and they did not have the same voice. There was another woman who was calling herself Sally, which is different, a different person than the the one who was broadcasting from Berlin that we know today it was Mildred Gillers. So the more I listened to her and the more I first found that there was no biography of Axis Sally, there had been of 
Tokyo Rose and other wartime traders, but there had not been one of, of Axis Sally. So I set about to, to write the first full-length biography, nonfiction biography of, of her life. And what really motivated me was her story of trying to achieve fame as an actress, trying to find it in, in America, falling on, on hard luck, going to Europe, and then finding a measure of success in Nazi Germany. The other question that I had was, how do you live in a country for the rest of your life after you've already been found guilty of, of treason? So um, there were all kinds of reasons to write this book. So many mysteries to her life. And I really had to dig to find the, the facts, to find what was really going on with her. And I think I did. Yeah. So again, to fully understand how she could do what she did in the 1940s. It's helpful, of course, to go back to her early life. Sure. Would you tell us about her growing up years? She was born in Portland, Maine in 1900. Her parents were from Canada, uh, her biological father and, and mother, but they moved to Portland, Maine. And when her mother divorced her first husband, who had an alcoholism problem, she took up with a, a itinerant dentist named uh, Robert Bruce Gillers. And Gillers, uh, he made good money pulling teeth at about a do- at a dollar a, a, a pop. But he worked along the railroad, so they were constantly moving, constantly pulling up stakes and moving. So you can actually see on a map where he moved and and the family moved from Portland to Pennsylvania, down to Ohio. And finally, when she was in high school, they settled in Conneaut, Ohio, where she went to high school. And her stepfather had a addiction to the laughing gas that he used at his practice. And as I dove into uh, interviews with her half-sister, she had a half-sister who was Giller's biological daughter, she made uh, several intimations that there had been abuse in the family beyond just the alcoholism. Uh, She made uh, uh, statements that uh, Mildred had been hurt by Dr. Giller's. And uh, finally, he, he died, leaving the mother alone in Ohio. So she had a rough rootless childhood where they moved along whenever the railroad crews moved he was moving to take care of their teeth until they finally she was almost i believe 15 or or uh 14 or 15 before she even had a had a home permanently so it was rootless it was uh she never had any um laid down any 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 roots and she also had this issue of uh the secret abuse uh, she went to Ohio Wesleyan uh, University in Delaware, Ohio. When she got to Ohio Wesleyan, she took up with a married drama teacher. And that drama teacher uh, convinced her to go to Cleveland without graduating. And uh, she began working in a jewelry jewelry counter at a large department store, all the while she's seeing this, this married man. And this starts a dependence on marrying men and kind of this uh, willingness to 
be with men who were not available. And this will show up later in her life in Berlin and it ends up a disaster. So sure, she, she had a very difficult upbringing. Did she grow up in a political family? Was she taught to think a certain way? She came from an Irish family, so they were very anti-British. I never saw that she had any kind of anti-Semitic, beyond the garden variety, general anti-Semitism that people had at that time in uh, the Middle West. Uh, She didn't have it. I mean, she was basically what you would call an isolationist Republican of the 1910s, 1920s. She was no different than anyone in Ohio at that time. The state was mostly Republican and uh, conservative. But uh, she was pretty much apolitical. She She considered herself an artist. And there was no indication that she would become this um, virulent anti-Semitic broadcaster in her early days. What was her relationship like with her mother? Her mother was close to her. As a matter of fact, what happened is uh, her mother, after Gillers died, did not have enough money to send her to, to, for her to finish her schooling at, at the uh, drama school. So she was uh, very disappointed and decided she's going to pack up and go to New York. And she performed in bus and truck tours. She performed uh, throughout the Lowe's circuit in the Northeast, U.S. and Canada. And then she ended up in some fairly, you know, some fairly uh, long-running vaudeville and uh, as a as a chorus girl, basically. So she did get some luck. But once the stock market crash occurred, she was basically doing publicity stunts for money, these sort of things. I opened the book with a, uh, with a story about her going on the Benjamin Franklin Bridge in Philadelphia. And she's, she's climbing up and she acts like she's going to jump. She throws her leg across the, the span and says that her husband has left her and she's pregnant and she needs to uh, she needs to end it all. What ended up happening is the police got her, threw her in jail, and it turned out to be a huge publicity stunt in order to get a uh, silent film called Unwanted Children Publicity. She was the uh, toast of the uh, Philadelphia tabloids for about a week there in 1927, and uh, it just goes to show her penchant for wanting more and more publicity. And it was really making up for something that she didn't have in her life. And uh, very interesting how, how she pursued it and how the links she would go to pursue it. She had a flair for the dramatic at an early age. From an early age, yes. yeah. And her mother supported, supported it. I mean, she was not uh, crazy about the fact that she left school, but uh, she supported her somewhat. And, and in fact, she helped her pay for her schooling in those, those early days until she could no longer. How, how did she look and act? Was she liked by her theater brethren? One thing that, I, that we know about her, um, her early life was she liked to telegraph. She wasn't exactly what you'd call a method actor. Self-control in her acting was not there. I don't believe that she had too many 
friends in the acting community. As a matter of fact, when things went south in the economy and she was basically going from restaurant to restaurant, hoping for a bite to eat because she, she had no way of, of paying. And she was given some uh, food and some uh, lodging at a uh, German restaurant that she worked at for a little while and uh, paid them back when she finally got some work. Uh, working in silent films, you had to exaggerate, right? Right. With facial expressions and gestures. And in vaudeville, your voice had to carry to the back of the theater. Right. And both required a heightened sense of, of drama. Right. And that's the way she came across. And uh, one thing that's remarkable about her, I find, is the way she was able to translate that kind of big personality into something as uh, intimate and as uh, personal as radio, which is probably one of the most one-to-one relationships that the technology has. I mean, basically, you're when you speak to a radio audience, you you have to speak to them like you're not ta- not addressing a huge group. You're talking to them uh, one person at a time, and she was able to master that. Uh, she found her niche doing radio. She had not done it in the United States, but uh, the story of how she gets to Berlin is, you know, a combination of luck and uh, and misfortune. So she, at some point, meets a man named Bernard Metz. Right. Could you tell us about that relationship? So she met Bernard Metz, who was a British and Jewish uh, foreign service officer. Both of them were uh, in New York, and both of them were followers of this cult leader, George Gurdjieff, and uh, they would meditate, uh, do physical exercises, um, use what they called Eastern mystical techniques and meditative techniques, and they were there for a time with Gurdjieff and his um, crew. When Metz was transferred to Algiers, he left her in New York. And instead of trying to find work, Mildred decided that she was going to follow him to Algiers. And I I found uh, these incredible pictures of her on a camel in Algiers. She was walking around there uh, in full Arab regalia. Very, very interesting. And uh, what happened was the relationship ended. I believe he met someone else and she was crushed. So when the relationship ended and she left Algeria, she called her or or contacted her mother. And her mother decided that they were going to go on a cook's tour of Europe, basically a tour of Eastern Europe and Germany. And it was 1933. And uh, she was very excited when she saw the enthusiasm and the the uniforms and the optimism in Germany. So she decided to stay. Her mother went back home. And it was the last time she ever saw her mother. She decided to remain in Germany. She she, um, took jobs with UFA, the German film studio. And when she had started, they were not completely... Aryanized or under the control of the Nazi party, that would come later. But she, in a very real way, she would do translations, dubbing, 
she would do uh, subtitles, those kind of things for Ufa's uh, output. So she got a job in the German film industry. She started to actually make some money. She was in a, in a good place from her point of view and was uh, not hungry and working. Uh, she also met a woman named Clara Trask, who's a remarkable figure because she put her in contact with many of the leading lights in, in, in the German film industry. This woman was a, uh, she had lost her husband in a gruesome car accident in, in Italy. And the car fell down a ravine. And, uh, Mrs. Trask was injured and her husband was killed. But what was remarkable was that Mildred took care of her, but she also wrote some of the film reviews for the New York Times and other newspapers for Mrs. Trask. And you can very easily see the difference between the ones that were written by Clara Trask and the ones, the reviews that were written by Mildred Gillers. Mildred Gillers was at her heart a cheerleader, not a critic. And she praised whatever it was that Goebbels Film Studios put out. She was almost like a, a gossip columnist, uh, the way she wrote her reviews and, and pitched it. She was a, a real cheerleader for the German film industry, and these showed up in, in American newspapers. So when the war broke out in 1939, Mildred was without work, and she had to make a decision whether she was going to go back to the United States, which she absolutely did not want to do because she had no luck in Broadway or Hollywood, and she wanted to remain in Germany. Now, she still had her U.S. citizenship, and despite all the things that have gone on during the 1934 to 1939 period, she still wanted to remain and had attempted to get her passport renewed, all of these things. She believed that the United States would not enter the war, that they would remain aloof, because when she left the United States to come to Berlin in 1933, she was basically an isolationist Republican, and that was the vast majority of Republicans in the country were conservative and isolationist. So she believed that there's no way that the United States would enter this war especially after the unpaid debts and uh, the regret that many people had for uh, joining the 1917 war. So she uh, stayed on, and she ran into a man named Max Otto Koichowicz. And Max Otto Koichowicz was a Hunter College professor from New York City. However, he failed to get tenure because he was effusively promoting the Nazi line in his classes and elsewhere. And he left and took his family to Berlin. So Koischwitz, he was employed by the Reichs Radio Corporation, which is Berlin Radio, for shortwave and external services, overseas services. So he was fairly high up in the German Foreign Office. And at that time, there was a huge struggle between Goebbels' propaganda ministry and the German Foreign Office's control over 
wartime broadcasts. And finally, after Goebbels and Ribbentrop got into it, there were fights, there were people locking each other out of radio studios. Hitler put his foot down during the war and said, the Foreign Office will handle external propaganda, and Goebbels and his propaganda ministry would handle internal propaganda. So what ended up happening was they took a look at what the weaknesses of the Foreign Service was. And one of those was, if you were sitting here in the United States listening to Berlin, or you were an English speaker, you could barely make out the accents because the accents were so thick. So they needed someone. They needed someone who was going to function as basically a Lord Haha or William Joyce did for the British service. Someone that Americans could relate to, someone that uh, spoke the colloquialisms of, of the United States. And lo and behold, uh, she lucked out and was offered this job. And she was paid on a per diem basis. She was one of the most uh, highly paid and most highly working members of the American staff. She wasn't the only one who was a radio um, broadcaster that was an American. There were others, uh, Douglas Chandler, Robert H. Best, Constance Drexel, and some others, Ezra Pound, the uh, poet. But she caught on, and she started to catch on because she was just playing music. She was announcing news. She was giving the weather. She had lighthearted talks on the, on the radio with no heavy propaganda. And while she might have taken a swipe at the British, she might have taken a swipe at Roosevelt, she would never say anything against, against her own country. When Pearl Harbor broke out in 1941, she was utterly shocked because she never believed that, that the United States would ever enter the war. And she was very angry at the Japanese. And uh, she she needed to make some kind of restitution in order to stay. She went on the air, right? And bashed Japan when she heard about Pearl Harbor. She was on the air, yes. And she could not believe it. And then she reassured her listeners that Germany would hold Japan accountable. For what they did, yes, yes. So what happened was she she stalked out of there and... She was put on, on leave, and the Gestapo brought her in, and they told her that she had to sign a loyalty oath in order to um, continue working there. And uh, she wrote out a letter saying, yes, you know, I, uh, I have my allegiance to Hitler and to the German government, not the United States government. Now, this letter was written... Uh, typed up by Koischwitz and her then boyfriend by that time. He was married with uh, three three daughters. But she was involved in this uh, relationship with him, and he was making her a well-known and uh, highly respected broadcaster uh, at the time. So he typed it up. She brought it in. Um, she believed at that time that she was basically renouncing her citizenship under U.S. law. The neutrality laws had provisions in it so that you could go back to your country and renounce your American citizenship 
and uh, you would not be considered treasonous if you if you did if hostilities broke out. Uh, so what ended up happening was she signed it, and she believed she was she was free and clear. She still though did not want to broadcast propaganda against the United States government or against the American war effort. Uh, pretty soon she started to do what was called medical reports. And they would move the needle closer and closer where she would describe the wounds of American airmen who were captured. She would describe what kind of wounds they had, how gruesome they were, in order to discourage the people back home in America. She would say, this is the result of Roosevelt's war, his war uh, for the British and for the Jewish, is how she would phrase it. And Koyschwitz was involved in convincing her more and more that she needed to do uh, more aggressive anti-war broadcasts. So she had um, Midget the Mike was one where they, he brought in a orchestra of probably the best musicians in Weimar, Berlin. Uh, the ones that weren't in concentration camp, the ones that were left over. And she would, she had this huge orchestra that performed while she gave her talks in between. The vast majority of them that I listened to at the National Archives were, in fact, mostly music. And for a moment, they'd do the news, and then she'd come back and say, okay, here's the medical reports, and it would be aimed at Mrs. So-and-so. Your son has been captured. He's a prisoner of war. He's got some very bad uh, broken bones. He'll be okay. And she was planning on using this as a defense in case uh, she was ever held legally responsible for her crimes. At that point, um, the war started to turn against Germany by 1942, 1943. There had already been bombing, Allied bombing in Berlin. And when the war started to go against Germany in favor of the Americans and the British, she would start to think about how she was going to walk this line of I'm not going to do anything against my my country so that she could prove that she had no treasonous intent. Um, her boyfriend, Koyschwitz, one night, his wife had just delivered an, another child, a fourth child. He was sitting in a movie theater with Mildred and his daughters when um, the hospital was bombed. And his wife was killed, the child was killed, and he was now a widower. Now, instead of marrying Mildred Gillers, Koyschwitz uh, did not marry her. And the interesting part of that is her legal liability for treason would have ended right there if, she, if he had married her, but he didn't. So he starts to get ill. He's got tuberculosis incipient tuberculosis and the food is getting worse it's harder to get things to eat he's getting sicker he's having more bad bouts of health and mildred and him 
come up with this idea of going on the road to prisoner of war camps in France, in Belgium, in Holland, and recording interviews with prisoners of war. And she would pose as a member of the, the Red Cross. She would show up with Red Cross on her lapel so that the American soldiers would think that she wasn't talking to Axis Sally or, or an American trader, but to a member of the International Red Cross. Uh, that lasted for uh, a matter of, of months, especially around the time of D-Day. And uh, there were several instances where the men in the prisoner of war camp realized who they were talking to, that you're Axis Sally. Uh, in one case, they offered her a carton of cigarettes. She liked to smoke Chesterfields, and they gave her a carton of cigarettes that was filled with feces. And she walked away angry. She was furious with them. And I tell the story in the book. All of these stories were uh, told at her trial by men who came up and, uh, and pointed her as being the person that they spoke to. Uh, in prisoner of war camp in France or in, in Holland. We'll be back in just a few moments. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Well, or call she, the police. Or call the police, like she should have, <laughs> exactly. What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon.
we have returned. Before we get too far along, you have provided us with some audio clips from the National Archives. Could you give us a little context on these clips before we play them, um, especially since they can be a little difficult to understand? Sure. She was um, well into doing propaganda at that point, but she an- she aimed her broadcasts at the women of America, the women whose sons and husbands were being sent to fight and to die in Europe. She always believed that the um, people back home were in this war against their will. And you can hear it in the propaganda line. You can hear it in the way she she talks about them. But it also gives you an idea of her actressy voice, her her uh, persona that she builds, and how she talks to Amer- uh, American women and mothers versus you'll see in some of the later clips when she's talking to American soldiers who aren't as receptive to her messages. The the German propaganda line to her, toward America um, between, say, 1940 to 1942 was always very uh, uh, ambiguous as far as trying to keep on good relations with the American people to not offend them. Once America entered the war, Mildred Giller's broadcasts started to aim at the fear of losing sons and husbands and appealed to the women of America to oppose the war, to oppose Roosevelt and his British and Jewish cohorts, as she said. She blamed Roosevelt chiefly for the U.S. entry into the war as though he dragged the United States in. On top of that, she emphasized in almost uh, gross and and macabre detail their wounds, Uh, the chances that your son or your husband is going to come home crippled without limbs, a shell of his former self, that he's going to be unable to work, that he'll be crippled and half dead. That was the fear that she was trying to put into the women back home in order to stoke opposition to America's involvement in the war. Good evening, women of America. Well, you know, as time goes on, I think of you more and more. I can't somehow seem to get you out of of my head. You women in America, waiting for the one you love, waiting and weeping in the secrecy of your own room thinking of the husband, the son, or the brother, who is being sacrificed by Franklin D. Roosevelt, perishing on the fringes of Europe. Perishing, losing their lives, at death, coming back home crippled, useless for the rest of their lives. For whom? For Franklin D. Roosevelt and Churchill and their Jewish cohort. And then... The next one I'll set up. In the middle of uh, many of her broadcasts, she would pipe in between orchestral numbers. This is a, an example. 
she uses a segue for a song called The Last Roundup. And she says, all over Europe, your uh, sons are, are going to die. Your men are going to die to be crippled and maimed. Many of them are heading for their last roundup. And that's how she used to, used, you know, what, what basically is common radio technique, talking up a record, basically. And she would use that and throw in propaganda. And she was pretty effective at it. The people back home would receive postcards from Berlin Radio, and they would write down, monitor the captured prisoners, the medical reports, and the people that Sally talked to. And then they would send off the postcards to the mothers and wives and send it to their parents. And it was remarkable the number of people who uh, in the government files said, um, I received news about my son being in a German prisoner of war camp and his status through Axis Sally because the monitors, the people who were listening to shortwave, were writing down those names and hometowns and would send off those postcards to tell them, I heard your son, he's okay. I heard about your son, he's wounded, but he's in a prisoner of war camp now. And and there are quite a few of them. So even while she was conducting propaganda, she was setting up a defense in case things went wrong. And here is that second clip. Women in America, thousands and thousands and thousands of your men now going from French North Africa via Sicily to Europe are on their last round. And then in about 1944, right before the invasion of France, she went to France with Koischwitz to await the assault. When the war started uh, going against them in France, they would move further and further in towards what, towards Central Europe. Many times they were retreating with the Germans, and uh, they would go to the prisoner of war camp. She would go bring the bring this huge recorder with her, which was running on. Um, it would record on cylinders, basically wax cylinders, and ask him questions. How do you feel? I'll bet you're glad that you're out of this war. And the guy would say, "Well, I'm okay." And she would say, well, I bet you're not happy about being here. And he'd say something like, well, it's better than being in the war. But if the if the gentleman, the prisoner said something that was anti-German or anti, uh, or couldn't wait to go back to the war to fight the Germans, she would shut it off or edit it out for a broadcast. So they were making these records, these roles for sending it back to the relay stations that they had all through Europe. You have to keep in mind that uh, when the Germans took Luxembourg in France in 1940, they had consumed, except for the BBC, all the transmitters other than, than the BBCs in, um, in, in Rio Moscow's in, in all of Europe. So they had a wide, wide range 
uh, and powerful transmitters to the time. So they were able to be heard and uh, in, in the theater of operations mostly. You told me a little while ago, before we began speaking here, that uh, all the boys wanted to get back home. Oh, yeah. We like to finish the war and go back home. Mm-hmm. Well, is there anything else you'd like to say? Way back to New York from the Paris, not very far from us? Well, I'd just like to say hello to everybody and have a good Well, I hope it won't be too long. Well, I hope I made you a little happy with this uh, yeah. message back home. Yeah. So, so I have a two-part question for you. Uh, first, did she go by the name Axis Sally on the air, or was that a name given to her? And two, what about the GIs listening to her broadcasts? Did any of them buy into the propaganda, or were they tuning in for the music and just kind of putting up with her lies? Well, the music, the music was the driving force because she was playing what was basically in Germany degenerate music. She was playing jazz and swing. And um, they were playing records and, and music that was forbidden in Germany. You couldn't play Bed and Goodman. You couldn't play any of the big band music in Germany. But her show, you could, and she did. And the GIs listened to it. And uh, they had a lot of names for her. Berlin Bitch was one, Berlin Babe. But the name that stuck was Axis Sally. The name, it, it was used by another woman named Rita Zuka, who was, an, who was broadcasting from Italy. And she basically took Mildred's act and co-opted it for the Italian theater. So she would say, good night, boys. Have a sweet kiss from Sally. And that was her her call. So they knew in Italy that the, that the GIs were calling Mildred Axis Sally, and this girl stole her, her act, and she ended up being furious about it, that this woman was stealing her, her thunder and her nom de guerre, and uh, she made a stink about it and threatened to quit. But uh, things calmed down after that, and uh, Rita Zuka's story is a very interesting one, too. But I think it's more important to talk about Mildred's, (laughs) her anger at this woman stealing her thunder, because this was her fame. You know, she was going to the best places in Berlin, the Hotel Adlon, she was being dined, wine and dined by Koschwitz, and she was known by many in the upper echelons of the Nazi party. Yeah, uh, this is what she always dreamed of. I mean, she had slogged through dead-end acting jobs for years and years, uh, always wanting to be a well-known actress, and now, in a twisted way, she had reached that goal. Right. They knew her from her voice. It's the most amazing story of somebody who wanted it. She didn't care whether she was infamous or famous. She just wanted that that fame. Even with everything that she saw in front of her, even with everything that um, she had to have seen between 1934 and 1939, 1941, she had to have known she was dating dating a man who was very high up in the foreign office. So it, it, it 
it defies the device credulity that she didn't know, even though she would tell many people when she was finally captured that she had no idea that the Holocaust was going on. Uh, it, it really defies credulity, but she uh, would maintain that for the rest of her life. Now, when she was doing these interviews in these POW camps, many of the GIs she interviewed were wondering who the heck this woman was with her perfect American accent. <laughs> right. And right. she was, again, asked outright if she was Access Sally. Yeah. Yeah. She she was using, she she was, um, she used on the air the, the name Midge. She would be like, this is Midge, Midge at the mic. But then the men called her Access Sally. And the minute they heard the voice, she would be very cagey about whether she was or was not. Um, there was one POW, I think his name was Michael Levonic, uh, who was interviewed by her. And it was a big story in, in, in the trial because he testified that she uh, came and she said, uh, he says, you're Exus Sally. And she smiled and laughed and tried to be uh, almost sex kittenish. And he noticed when she crossed her legs that she wasn't wearing any underwear. And it was uh, talked about in court and newspaper uh, that she had exposed herself to this guy, trying to get him to do what what she wanted to record the propaganda that she wanted. So you know, here's this woman who is she's she's a you know at that time she's a hard forty three year old going gray. She was not the ingenue that she once was. And things would go from bad to worse in the um, ensuing two years from 1944 to 1946. But she always tried to pay, play that sex kitten type of thing. So things start to fall apart for her when Professor Koiswich dies. Yep. He was her protector. And after he's gone, things get worse for her. Yeah, she has no protector. One of the most important parts of the story is, as I mentioned before, she could have been protected by him had he married her. Well, he was ill. He got called back to Berlin. She was in, in France uh, recording interviews. She made a phone call, and the person on the other side said that um, in Berlin said that he had died. She traded a bag of coffee for a ticket. She bribed her way onto a train going toward Berlin, and she made it just in time to attend his funeral. Probably the most the most jarring thing that I saw in her interrogation by the um, counterintelligence corps was when they said, why didn't you run towards the Americans? Why didn't you move toward the Allies if you were an American and you didn't have treasonous uh, intentions? She said, I never thought he would die. I thought I was going to be with him. He was my, my love. And on the stand as well, she said, I never thought he would die. How would I know he was going to die? It never occurred to me. And she ends up 
unprotected, he's gone. The war is coming to an end. American and Soviet forces are coming in west and east. And there's a great scene in the book where she is hiding in Berlin in April 1945. And she is sitting there in the studio, hiding underneath the console, the recording console. And a man who had played in the orchestra and was in the army now, the German army, was on patrol. And he ran into her and says, Miss Gillers, what are you, what's going on? And she said, the Russians are going to try to, to kill me. They're looking for me. So are the Americans. I've got to get out of here. So she stayed there until the very end. And she left through the back door when the Soviets came and broke into the radio studio. From that point on, she, hot, she hid uh, in uh, bomb shelters. She scrounged whatever she could to survive. She had um, considerable amounts of antiques that she used to trade. Her lover's daughters, Koischwitz's daughters, threw her out of their apartment. They told her she couldn't stay there and uh, basically gave her walking papers. She had nowhere to go. But she'd go to various people who were bartering and still had things that she would take her antiques and her valuables, and she would trade them for food. It's a remarkable story. When they finally came looking for her in 1946, because they did not know her name at that point. They knew Douglas Chandler, Robert H. Best, Constance Drexel, all of these people who who had broadcast for the Nazis and for the Italians, Ezra Pound. They had indicted them in, as early as 1943, but they didn't know who this Mildred Gillers was, who this Axis Sally was. They came across in her uh, apartment, the apartment that she had left, there was a basement. And in the basement, uh, she had saved some things. And one of the things that she saved was several of those rolls, those wax rolls that they used to record her shows. She saved some of her best work. And that work was used uh, as evidence against her when she was brought to trial in 1948. I think that this is a good time to play a clip from her magnum opus, mm -hmm. Vision yes. of Invasion. And we'll play a portion of one of the clips you sent me. Um, it's got a lot of dramatic wailing and screaming. <laughs> yeah. And again, it's, it's difficult to understand. Yes. But it'll give us a taste of what this thing was all about. They're all very hard to understand because we got it. It was recorded from uh, Silver Hill, Maryland, which was where the FCC had a monitoring site. But the the original broadcast was not saved, and she thought it was you know her best work. So uh, she thought it was gone for the ages, and boy was she surprised when they pulled it out uh, and used it against her on a record. They had press records of it to play it in court. So I think, uh, yeah, you, what you hear in Vision of Invasion is a script 
that was written by Max Otto Koischwitz in 1944. And it is, uh, she plays a young man's mother, and that young man is in Britain waiting to go to Normandy to land on a ship. But then the ship is torpedoed. She has a vision of him drowning in the Atlantic. And her husband, uh, her husband, played by a very thick accent, a German actor, poo-poos her clairvoyance. But she says, no, Alan is on that. He's drowning. He's drowning. He's dying. And you can hear in these these clips, you can hear some of the go the back and forth between the husband and 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 Mildred and and uh, her uh, overacting. It, 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 the wailing never quite quite uh, stops, but it, it's hard to sometimes make out what's going on. But in a nutshell, she sees she's awakened. She sees a dream of her her son uh, dying at sea, and she wakes up. And this is supposed to be a warning to the American people that their sons are going to 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 perish in this invasion, that it's not a good idea. And on top of that, uh, at the end of it, at the end of the uh, play, uh, an announcer comes on and says, D stands for death, D stands for destruction. And uh, that's the propaganda message. Uh, and Remarkably, when she goes to trial in 1948, this is the one thing that she did, the one act that she did that was considered aid and comfort to the enemy, precisely because the intent was to stop the invasion, the D-Day invasion. So it directly was aimed at the war effort, and in addition, they brought in from Germany two actors who had played in that vision of invasion. So she had there were two eyewitnesses to her crime and said and pointed at her and said, yes, she did it. The law of treason requires that you have two people, two eyewitnesses. And it also has to to make a uh, you have to have a direct connection uh, between giving what you did, and giving aid and comfort to the enemy during a period of war to stop and to harm the war effort. So that's why uh, she was convicted on only this one count. Okay, so here's that clip now. As a warning, it's it's a little eerie, I've got to say. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
We will return momentarily. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist? When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Back again. So one of the most important clues gathered by investigators as they tried to determine Mildred's real identity, 
they learned that she had casually offered up one of her aliases to a POW in one of those earlier interviews she had yeah. done. When the counterintelligence corps was um, sent to Berlin 1946, they talked to some of the men who were interviewed by her. They got an idea of what she looked like, but they wanted to find out what was her name, where was she from, what was her story, because they had no idea. Luckily, one man recalled that she gave him the name Barbara Mohm. When he asked her whether she was the ex of Sally, she identified herself as Barbara Mohm. Barbara Mohm was a, a, a pseudonym that she took as an actress uh, that she occasionally used. And they were able to find Barbara Mohm, uh, her false papers where she was getting food rations. And how they got her was she was living in a bombed out uh, apartment with uh, several other people. And she had decided to barter some antiques. The CIC officers told the shop owner to tell her that he's got some money for her. And she came, she did, did the exchange, got the, got the money, and they followed her back to her apartment uh, and arrested her. When she sat down and told her story to U.S. intelligence, they took a very, very detailed interrogation. Uh, and she said, I would have given up if, if I knew you were going to feed me because she was starved. She goes, I would have given up just for a hamburger because she was that, that hungry in 1946 Berlin. She had already made it this far and was struggling. So remarkably, they threw her in uh, Dachau, which was repurposed for Nazi war, war criminals. And uh, uh, one of her, the people she was in with was Otto Scorzani, who was the man who rescued Benito Mussolini from Lake Como uh, when the Americans came. So she was there until Christmas 1946, and something happened where the United States issued a, a Christmas amnesty and let several people out of jail who were considered collaborators. Barbara Moe, Mildred Gillers, was one of them. So she comes out of prison. She starts talking to the press. She can't resist talking to the press. And they ask her about how things are going and how things are going in the world with the Soviets, and what are your political opinions now? And she says, well, the Soviet Union's actions up to now prove that Hitler was right all the time about the, the Russians. Next thing you know, there's pressure back in Washington. She gets pulled back in. She could have probably gotten off, but she had to talk in newspapers across the country about how right Hitler was on Christmas of 1946, and uh, she ended up back in prison. Um, she remained there until 1948, when right before the election of Truman and Dewey, that spring she was brought back, and as was Tokyo Rose, uh, in some very highly publicized trials in Washington. 
uh, for about two weeks. The Axis Sally trial was uh, pretty much high drama. They played her recordings. They they played one recording which uh, she actually uh, quite dramatically fainted because she heard herself saying to the women of America, to the mothers of America, did you raise your child to be a murderer, to be murderers, to kill German uh, German children? And uh, it was a dramatic trial. But in the end, because of her own taking the stand in her own uh, defense and the fact that the jury was split on some of the other counts, she was convicted of only one one of the counts. And she, she was... Um, she was sentenced to 10 to 30 years in prison. Um, she served 12 in Alderson Prison in West Virginia, women's prison. She served there with Tokyo Rose and a number of other people. So she was hotly disliked by the prison population there. Uh, she was rude. She was racist. She turned her back on everybody. And then she started to befriend uh, a Roman Catholic priest and in, near, in one of the nearby towns in West Virginia who ministered to her. She converted to Catholicism, and more and more she became part of the, of the prison population, uh, helped the other girls, helped the uh, – there was a lot of sewing and – things like that. So she became a, basically a model prisoner. And by 1958-59, they started to think about um, letting her out uh, because she was already 60, 61. In 1961, she would have been let out and she would be 60 years old. And some of the reasons cited for parole was her record and also the fact that she would have declining chances for employment if she stayed any longer and the government didn't want to keep her in. So the Catholic church offered her a job and uh, she was working as a teacher in a convent school for girls who were going to go into the, um, into the nunnery. And uh, of course, in the early sixties, there were a lot more girls going into the sisterhood than uh, in the late sixties. But uh, she got out, started teaching there. And then when that convent school closed down, many people not even knowing you know, who she was. This was in Columbus, Ohio, where she spent the last years of her life. She um, started teaching also as a tutor in a Catholic high school in Columbus. And uh, many of the people, many of the students, many of the families did not know that this was the woman that was Axis Sally who was teaching their kids and they kept it uh, very quiet and she worked during her life like this uh, until she became too old. She died of colon cancer in 1988 and today she's buried in an unmarked grave in Columbus and you can, um, it's very eerie when you sit, when you visit, uh, you can only find it, the spot through a map. You stand there and you see the number of World War II veterans who surround her gravesite. Uh, 
you think of the irony of it. Um, but it, it's quite a it's quite a sight, and I talk about that in the book. I went there myself and uh, got a feel for for it. But uh, many people who befriended her in her later years didn't know who she was, didn't know what she had done or anything about it. She was just an older lady. So one of the questions you personally had as you were researching and writing your book was whether she was repentant or not for what she had done. Right. And you would eventually interview someone who knew her later in life and would offer a little insight as to whether she felt remorse. This was a this was a question that I, even after writing the book, I wasn't totally sure of how much she would have changed what she had done in her life versus how much she thought she still maintained she might she was correct in what she did. I think she got through it by saying I couldn't have done anything differently. I, I had no choice. And whether whether she did or not, there were junctures, and I talk about in the book, where she could have gone home. She could have left Germany. She could have turned her back on it. In fact, after Pearl Harbor, many of the people who were working in Berlin who were American expatriates, they were put in an apartment house and kept there a hotel and then were reprocessed and sent back to the United States. So they went home. Claire Trask, Mildred's mentor in Germany, as an example, she refused to work for the Nazis and yes, left Germany. That's right. She left. And uh, uh, only some people did not. I mean, if, for example, Robert H. Best, was he took up with an uh, Austrian countess and she had property, and he married her and uh, remained there. He ended up dying in prison, guilty of treason. Douglas Chandler remained there. Paul Revere was his radio persona. But none of them were as long-lasting or as um, really fascinating to the listeners as Axis Sally. Uh, I did speak to someone after the book was finished. I was in Columbus, and I was speaking to an older gentleman and his wife. And they told me that when they knew her in the 80s, she was living in government housing in Columbus. She couldn't afford heat. She was basically living on a, on a shoestring. It was very cold in the apartment because she couldn't afford the heat. She offered them tea. And the woman told me the story about how she prized this one cup, teacup that she had, above all others. And when you went to her house, she would serve you. She had very little, little property. She had very little money. But she would serve them with this teacup. And it was given to her the night that she met someone in the high reaches of the Nazi state. And of course, I was asking her, do you know who it was? She says, um, let me think. 
And I said, was it Goebbels? Because I thought she worked for the propaganda ministry. She worked for the foreign office. It could have been Goebbels, Ribbentrop. No, no, was her response. She thought about it a little more. And she said, I know, it's Himmler. Heinrich Himmler, she kept this cup from the night she met the head of the SS, Heinrich Himmler. And I think the ending of the book, the tone of my book, had I included that in the final chapter, that story, I think would have affected my my final tone on her culpability. Because before I didn't know, I had to assume that there was pillow talk between her and Koishwitz, that she saw certain things, but we could only guess at what she saw versus what she admitted to seeing or participating in. But when I heard that um, she was on speaking terms with someone that high up in the terror state, it was uh, it was a bit of a shock. I fully expected her to say Goebbels or Ribbentrop because that was someone that she worked with worked with in the in the hierarchy of, of the Nazi government. No, this was uh, Himmler, and uh, and I assume she she meant Hitler as well, but I couldn't nail down exactly exactly when she had seen him several times. Well, hopefully you'll get an opportunity to update your book in a future edition. I hope so. So before we go, I would like to ask you about Lord Haha. Yes. What's his story? Sure. How did he get that name? <laughs> right. William Joyce was um, known as Lord Haha. And when the war broke out, he was a leader of the British fascists in, in Britain. He was a street fighter. He was a politician. He first worked for Sir Oswald Mosley, who was the leader of the British fascists. But when Mosley was interned on the eve of war, Joyce and his wife escaped to Germany. And immediately, they put him on the radio to speak on Berlin Radio to, to Great Britain. Well, the BBC, uh, unprepared for war, had no content, basically. They had news. They had announcements from the government. They had organ music. They had gale warnings and weather. And then they would go silent or, or just have organ music until the next news, uh, next broadcast. So the British people were kept in the dark. The first six months to year of the war were largely kept in the dark because of the censorship, which was so tight uh, from September 1939 on. So at nine o'clock every night, in order to get some semblance of what is going on, they would turn on Berlin Radio and they would hear William Joyce, Lord Ha Ha. Now he got that name from a, a, a a columnist, I believe from the Daily Telegraph, I could be wrong about this, but his his name was, they called him Lord Ha Ha of Zeeson. He had a very thick upper crust accent, a high class accent, and the Lord Ha Ha part was just a funny name they gave him, but the of Zeeson 
Zeeson is the name of the place where the antenna farms for German overseas radio and domestic radio were located. And so that's how he got the name, Lord Ha Ha of Zeeson. So every night at nine o'clock, because there were no, there's no information coming from the BBC, very little, and censorship was so tight, they would tune into Berlin to listen to what he was doing. And his tone was verged on the, um, it was critical of, of Chamberlain, critical of Churchill, especially cr- critical of Churchill. But it was cruel. It was um, remarkably bitter towards Britain, uh, especially in May 1940 when the Germans overran Luxembourg and France and Lord Ha Ha announced that the Battle of France is over, we're coming, who knows when the Battle of Britain will begin. He was kind of mimicking Churchill's speech of that time. He was uh, very sarcastic, incisive. He really knew how to slice up the, uh, the upper class from the, the labor class. He knew how to aim for uh, the false promises of the British government. Some of the best uh, propaganda came in those first uh, two years. Well, when uh, the war went against Germany, uh, Mr. Joyce uh, became an inveterate drinker, a very heavy alcoholic. And you can hear his final, final uh, drunken broadcast on the internet where he says, uh, he closes with Heil Hitler, even though Hitler is dead. Um, how he was caught by the British was he went to look for firewood, and he saw two British Tommies looking for firewood. And he said in German, not in English, but in German, there's some firewood over there. And he points it to them. And they knew right away from his unmistakable voice that they had heard so many times before they went to war. He, they pulled their pistols and said, you're Joyce, aren't you? And he, he, uh, he was pulled in, tried, tried in London, and hung. Uh, even though he was born in the United States and was a, uh, basically by birth an American citizen. The court ruled that all this time he had pronounced himself British, and whether he pronounces himself as a Irish citizen or a American citizen, in his broadcasts and throughout his life, he identified as British. So you are going to hang, and he—they hung him right away. There was very little gap between his conviction and his hanging. There was no mercy for people like that in Britain. So there is a movie out. It came out last year. I haven't seen it. Uh, called American Traitor: The Trial of Axis Sally. What did you think of that? There are parts of the script that are made up of whole cloth. There, there's a scene in there where she, first of all, she's uh, uh, Mildred is pictured as kind of a youngish ingenue blonde 
Joseph Goebbels uh, rapes her in this this ridiculous uh, scene. Um, but what they did get that was correct were kind of scenes from the book where she escapes out the back door of the uh, of the radio station. She does all of that. The book is purportedly it's based on the on the memoirs of one of the defense lawyers. His father was uh, a member of the defense team. But my problem with the movie is that it's a, it's a historical in the sense that there are scenes that are absolutely did not happen, but some of the things did. And uh, you know, I had received calls from. LA and, and from the West Coast uh, when it was in pre-production, I didn't know that that it was uh, going to be made. I had been, I had a separate script going around or a separate uh, screen treatment going around at the time, and uh, I don't know whether this the failure of this movie is affecting my my ability to get a, a the true story, the real story made. But I hope it sometime uh, it will be done. I, I I really hope so. I uh, I was told that it was too difficult a story because of the anti-Semitism, or you know, she's not a sympathetic figure. So it it was problematic getting it made in the first place, bad or good. So in in that sense, they that's an accomplishment. They were able to do that. I just wish it had turned out better. Al Pacino was fine in it. As James Laughlin, James Laughlin was um, a bigger-than-life defense lawyer, big game hunter, but uh, he he captured the the essence of this big this big uh, character that, that that it needed. The rest weren't so great. It was very melodramatic, but I I think that uh, I think that the story needs to be told. It needs to be told. Over time, you know, time, how this woman becomes her, becomes Axis Sally, how she becomes. This is a story about fame, and it's a story about the insatiable need for fame or infamy and laying your life down in order to get it. And that's what she did. She ended up broke. She ended up alone. She ended up in jail. She ended up watched by the government. That's another part of this that uh, I found found out that she, every for the rest of her life she was she was uh, watched. Um, but you know this is a, this is how what happens when you want fame above all else, and it, it's a story of a rise and fall. And uh, she had to go somewhere else to to get that rise. And she ended up in uh, a genocidal regime and became very much a part of it. So I, I think it's a sweeping story that goes from the 20s to uh, the 20s to the 60s. And for a woman, a, a, a great actress uh, who could do that wide range of, of ages, I think it's a perfect, perfect vehicle. But um, hopefully... Hopefully at some point, whether it'll be a, a series or something, hopefully someone will take it and, and do it the right way. Yeah, I hope your, your project gets made as well. There's nothing worse than a historically inaccurate film masquerading as 
history. Yeah. Well, even worse was the parts of my book that I knew that the only place they could have gotten was from there. <laughs> and, you know, and then to, it's one thing if you're going to do it, but, you know, do it right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So for people who would like to connect with you. Yes. How can they do it? Okay. You could uh, contact my publisher, Casemate Publishing in uh, Pennsylvania. It's outside of Philadelphia. Uh, or you can contact me directly at rlucas, R-L-U-C-A-S, 122561 at yahoo.com. And uh, I'd be more than happy to uh, to speak to you if you needed, if you'd like me to speak to uh, a group or, or, or join you for something uh, and talk about it. I've lectured at the Intrepid uh, on C-SPAN and uh, a number of colleges and uh, I really love the subject, and I love uh, sharing it with uh, people. Well, thank you for sharing with us, and your book is available wherever books are sold. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, online, uh, and Casemate Publishing. Well, thanks again. This is such a compelling story. Thank you. Thank you very much. Again, my guest has been Richard Lucas. His book is called Axis Sally, the American voice of Nazi Germany. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. <laughs>